Take your Bible and turn to Isaiah 36. We have a significant change in the book today. Some of you might enjoy. Certainly it was delightful in study this week as we move from poetic prophecy uh, into narrative. Uh, Major change, which is fun. I would remind you uh, as I read this that this is God's word and that he has promised to use this for two purposes. Uh, one purpose, the hard one, is that if you are not his child and, and reject him, this is really to harden your heart and to further make your life more difficult. Uh, but if you are a child of the king, this reading of the word will bless you in some fashion, even if you don't fully understand exactly how yet. So pay attention, hear the word of the Lord. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. The king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah, Jerusalem, with a great army. He stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah is removed? Saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, 
For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat his own vine and each one of you his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent. And answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken to us in the reading of your word. We ask that you would speak in your preaching. We pray also that you would account for our frailty and that you would give understanding and even be so generous as to give faith. We pray for Christ's sake, amen. I don't know if your home was this way, perhaps uh, older, uh, your kids are older now, maybe not in the home anymore, or if you have young kids, or even when you remember your kid, when you were a kid yourself, But you lived in a home that was filled with games, but not just games in generic, but board games in specific. Maybe don't think of it this way, but board games play a significant part in the intellectual development of a child in kind of the modern world, postmodern world in which we live. I probably think that most homes is a good idea if children grow up playing board games. It's extremely beneficial, and primarily, I mean, there are a whole bunch of benefits, But primarily, it's one of the ways that even from very small, children can be taught to think strategically, to think at not just impulse thinking, right? Most of us have some form of impulse thinking. We put our hand on the stove, we realize it's hot, we pull our hand away. I don't like that. My hand hurts. However, many of us have, perhaps through developmental problems or just impatience, not developed the ability to think strategically, to think two or three or four or five steps down the line, to map out anything in kind of the future to see any form of kind of cause and effect. I think now in my 40s, watching kind of the news and seeing increasingly social media people talking, it's one of those great features that's been lost in American culture. Increasingly, we're losing the ability to kind of think strategically. And this is a problem for a number of reasons. One is it kind of prevents us from thinking through kind of our own tactics in life. But perhaps even more significantly is it It makes us unaware, really, of thinking of everybody else's tactics in life towards us. Really, people who don't think strategically are people that are incredibly easy to manipulate. They're people that are easily moved. They're people that are easily played. They're people that are easily confused, 
and led astray. In fact, actually, it seems to be, as we read through the Scriptures, it's one of the great things that the devil tries to keep his, the people of God from doing. He does not want us thinking strategically. Because if we're able to think strategically, think two or three or four steps down the road, we will be more likely to set up our defenses against him. In fact, if you look at so many of his temptations, they are largely that kind of impulse thought. Ooh, the food looks good. I think I'll eat it. Ooh, this situation looks scary. I think I'll run away. Ooh, my brother's making me angry. I think I'll kill him. We don't spend those energies to think through kind of procedurally. What's the process that's taking place? What are the tactics that are being used? Now, this chapter is intriguing. I mean, not just for a historical purpose. We know the exact year this is taking place. Not just because it features a dude named the Rabshaka, which has to be one of the cooler names in the entirety of the Scriptures. But because right here we have recorded in Scripture one of the most kind of elegant, brilliant, and persuasive presentations of a multifaceted psychological attack on the people of God. What we have here in many ways just kind of recorded is it's the tactics the devil himself, the enemies of God, are using to persuade the people of God not to trust the Lord. You probably remember, I guess, uh, what's taking place here kind of leading up to this point. This is where Sennacherib, the great and evil king of Assyria, he's a wretched, wretched, evil man, uh, but has been severely successful in his brief reign at this point in history. He came into power. It took him roughly two years to consolidate power uh, in his local capital and local country, and then from there he moved west. Uh, as he moved west and then southwest, he was uh, sufficiently successful at basically destroying everybody that stood in his way. Uh, by the time this is recorded, he's already boasting having captured over 200,000 Jews and having them in his possession uh, as servants and slaves by this point. This man is not a good man, he is a villain. He is the worst kind of villain because he also does not show mercy to those that he would have captured. He was an awful man, but a powerful one. And at this point, as he's moved west and then begun to move south, he's basically kind of, well, let's see if I get this for you backwards. I do it wrong every time. He's moved west, and now he's moving kind of down the shoreline through Israel approaching Judah. And what we have as the passage begins is the Rabshakeh, the king's cupbearer, this is for you Lord of the Rings fans, the voice of Sauron, speaking with the delegates of the good guys, the three representatives of the king, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. And the Rabshakeh, the voice of the evil king, begins a psychological assault on the people of God. This is, at its best, psychological warfare. At its worst, at parts, it's downright blasphemy, but it's intended to be successful at paralyzing the people of God so they will not and cannot trust the Lord. 
Now, if you've been paying attention to the book and even Isaiah's ministry thus far, Isaiah's challenge all along has been for the people of God to repent and trust God. Repent and trust God. Repent and trust God. And interestingly, that's the backdrop of the message for the Jews. And now the contrast happens. Do we hear Isaiah and heed his words, or do we hear the Rabshakeh and heed his words? Do we listen to God or to his enemies? Do we listen to God or man? Now, what we, at least I intend to do in the next brief few moments, is just consider quickly some of the tactics that the Rabshakeh uses to persuade the people of God not to trust him. Now, I suspect this hopefully could be a very helpful exercise, as I think you'll find the tactics actually haven't really changed today. Uh, Really, the first kind of movement here takes place in verses 5 through 10. The Rabshakeh starts speaking to them in verse 4 and says, take this to the king, King Hezekiah. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. Listen carefully. And then verses 5 through 10, well, 4b through 10, is the most complicated, convoluted mixing of truth and lies and distorted perceptions on the world. It's really intriguing, actually, how he does it. His relationship with the truth is beyond questionable. That's the first thing, really, that we're going to see. A tactic of the devil is a questionable relationship with the truth. Look at what he says, right? Verse 4, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and powerful words? So do you you think we can talk your way out of this? Well, there's actually a reason why he's calling that out. Because Hezekiah's already done that. He's already been having a long-running conversation with the king, with Sennacherib, where he's trying to talk his way out of the problem. In fact, actually, at this point, he's already sent a massive amount of gold over there in an effort to try to buy his way out. And so the king is straight up actually calling, or the Rabshakeh is calling out what King Hezekiah has already done. Do you think you can talk your way out of this? Well, no, of course you can't. You haven't been successful at it yet. It's true, right? In whom do you now trust that you've rebelled against me now that you're standing up to me? What do you think is going to happen? Well, verse 6, behold, you're trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. So he's calling out this alliance that the Jews had made with Egypt and saying, look, why are you trusting Egypt? Egypt's not reliable. They're not the powerhouse that they used to be, and even if they were, they wouldn't be faithful to you because you guys are lifelong enemies. You guys have been enemies at this point for roughly 700 years. You think you're going to be friends now? And the interesting thing right there is, is any of that false? Not a word of it, actually. He, his opening kind of salvo delivered to the Jews, delivered to these three delegates and the men who listen on the wall, is 100% true. It's devastating truth. It's 
damning truth, it's condemning truth, but it is truth nonetheless. The king of the Jews had made an alliance with an unreliable Egypt and had trusted that Egypt would be his help. Egypt could never be his help. Verse 7, though, now there's a change. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? Now, here, this is true, but not really. (laughs) It's a half true so that it becomes entirely false. Hezekiah had actually cleaned up the worship of of Yahweh, worship of God in Israel. He had gotten rid of the high places. He had consolidated worship and had tried to, in some fashion, clean house. He had tried to restore to at least more pure worship than what they were having prior. And you know, if you kind of well-read in your your Old Testament reading, anytime you hear that, that catchphrase, high places, that almost always refers to the worship of pagan gods, uh, not to the living and true God. So what had happened in Israel's history was uh, every time they begin to wander, their worship of the living and true God got distorted, and what they would do is they would worship Yahweh largely in their homes or in the tabernacle or temple or whatever else, but then they would set up altars to the gods of the land in the high places. So you could worship Yahweh in your home or you could worship Yahweh in your town, but when it came time to the high places, that's where you could go and worship the Baals. You could worship the gods of the land. So when the Rabshakeh is talking, he's, he's not entirely wrong. His spies have reported to him accurate facts that King Hezekiah has begun to cleanse the land and has taken down the high places of worship. And notice what his presupposition is. His presupposition, the more worship there is, the greater the God. And so in verse 7, he's saying, don't tell me we trust in our God, because your God is puny. Look at him. Your God is so puny that even his king is tearing down his places of worship. He's tearing down his churches. Your God is puny. Now, intriguingly, that's not accurate actually at all. Well, I mean, it's half accurate. It's an accurate kind of presentation of, yes, some of the high places have been taken down, and yes, some of the worship of God had been uh, kind of condensed saying, yes, you need to worship here. But that's not why at all. It's not why that had happened. It's not what Hezekiah was even doing at all. And then verses 8 through 10 is fantastic because this is just a downright lie, and I absolutely love it. It's ostentatious, boastful insanity. Come now, let's strike a deal. I'll make a wager. I'll give you 2,000 horses. That is a lot, in case you can't count to 2,000 if you're able to put riders on them, and then you'll be equipped to actually fight back. The problem is, is you don't have 2,000 riders, 
And even if you did have 2,000 riders, your army is so puny, verse 9, that you can't even handle a small captain in Assyria's army. Here he begins to boast in Assyria's military prowess and actually just demean the Jews. Your soldiers are rotten, your soldiers are weak, your soldiers are wimps. They're not able to fight at all. How in the world is this even possible? And then verse 10, his lies now take on a new tone. Moreover, right, icing on the cake, cherry on top. Is it without God himself that I've even be able to come here? No, in fact, actually the Lord told me, go destroy the land. Wow, that's impressive, isn't it? Now, what he's probably actually referencing here is weirdly, it's probably Isaiah's ministry. He's probably had spies that have been in Jerusalem and have been listening to Isaiah amongst the others. And what has Isaiah been saying? Isaiah has been saying, if you don't repent, the Lord will judge the land. And how will he judge the land? He will use Assyria to do it. But did the Lord sit down the rabshaka and say, hey, buddy, it's time to go. I'm giving you marching order. No. I love this paragraph. Because honestly, if you kind of change the names a little bit, this reads like, Well, really from any time in human history, doesn't it? The tactics that are being employed are the same tactics that the devil uses today in his relationship with the people of God and how the enemies of God relate to the people of God. What does he do? He tells the truth when it will hurt the worst. He distorts the truth to cover over its reality and then downright lies when it will benefit him the most. Oh, it's shocking. Now, this is kind of where I started out again with my great love of board games that you know. But even beyond that, that ability to think strategically. And it's so important that we all learn to think strategically so that we're able to see the strategies that are being employed against us that are being used against us, the ones that are being kind of working uh, and applied uh, against the people of God. And notice these three kind of movements and how quickly they kind of function as a braid all woven together, telling the truth when it hurts more, distorting the truth to cover over its reality, and just downright lying when that might serve our needs. It's intriguing, actually, friends. If you're willing to stop and contemplate the church's relationship with the outside world, like 98% of it falls within those three movements. It falls within those three movements. And we saw it even in the earliest church, earliest church history right after right, Jesus dies, ascends, uh, goes to glory, everything. The, the early church begins to grow and immediately runs into problems. They uh, run afoul of the local governments and officials. And what do you begin to hear? You begin to hear them say things like, well, um, uh, they practice incest because they marry their brothers and sisters. They practice cannibalism because they eat the body and blood of their Lord. 
I mean, that, you're, you're not technically right, but you're also not technically wrong. And they were actually persecuted in Rome for those very things. Those were the things that were used to persecute the church in order to kind of give foundation and grounds for Christians to be killed and martyred, to take the truth, but to turn it on edge just a little bit, kind of tweak it and make it not quite right. Well, why is this being used? What these kind of, this questionable relationship with the truth is being employed, but it's being employed for one very specific target. Uh, the Rabshak is trying to accomplish something, and the enemies of God are no less doing the same thing today. Verse 11, Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah actually address this. They understand what's going on. They're very clever men. They're thinking carefully. And so they kind of uh, redirect the conversation. Please, Rabshaka, and this is a, a legitimate request, Speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Now, this request, it would have been a common sense request. Aramaic was the language of commerce. It was the language of business. It was uh, the language of, of governance. It was the language of the land. It's the language that everybody would have used for politics. It would have been the language you would have used for treaties. It would have been the language you used for war. However, the Rabshakeh is not speaking Aramaic. The Rabshakeh is speaking Hebrew because the Rabshakeh is actually not trying to talk to Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. That's actually not his target. He's not actually trying to ultimately address the emissaries of the king, and they know that. In fact, they call him out for it. Sir, Please switch to Aramaic. That would be the, proper, the appropriate um, decency. It would be the right thing to do. It would be uh, the right sense of um, uh, manners and practice. And we do not want the people of Judah listening from the wall. Now, what they understand is that not all of the Jews would have been able to speak Aramaic. Many would. Certainly those that would have been part of kind of your ruling classes would have, but the masses might not have been. And what we don't want is we do not want the masses to have to listen to your lies. We don't want the masses to have to engage this. And why do we not want the masses to engage this? Well, interestingly, the Rabshakeh makes it abundantly clear in the next sentence. Why is he doing this? He's, he has this kind of questionable relationship with the truth where he, he uses it when it hurts, he ignores it when it won't. And the purpose, he comes out in verse 12, is just fear. He's trying to make the people afraid. Verse 11, they ask him to switch back as polite business would dictate and demand. Verse 12, what does he say? Why would I switch back? Why would I switch to Aramaic instead of Hebrew? Because you want me to hide what I'm saying. Instead, these people need to hear what I have to say because they are going to be the people who are going to suffer when our nation puts this city to siege. 
When our army arrives in full and surrounds Jerusalem and your people are locked inside so there is no food, so there is no water, so they are left uh, consuming their own waste as their only options for food. It's just pure fear tactic. Now, it's very clever, it's very well executed, but it is a magnificent scare tactic. He's just trying to make them afraid. Make them afraid of him in verse 11. Make them afraid of their discomfort in verse 12. It's an attempt to make them afraid. This is, again, where we probably need to be uh, intentionally thoughtful I would say probably most humans that I interact with now are not super self-aware humans anymore. Like we, we tend to do a very poor job now of diagnosing the self. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why that is. I, I have guesses, but I don't have good enough guesses to share them yet. But the more I interact with people and the longer I pastor, the more I think we're kind of coming into a moment of cultural crisis where people don't know what's going on on the inside. They just don't know why. And again, I'm, I'm not entirely sure why that is yet. But I will say this. The average person that I get a chance to talk to will probably come in and say something to the effect of, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not really that afraid. I don't really struggle with fear. And then within the 90 seconds after that, they will use the words anxious, nervous, upset, bothered by, irritated by, concerned by, or any other of the thousand synonyms to describe their lives. Where we have this kind of moment as as a, a reformed church, where you have people that are saying, I'm not afraid but I'm all the other words for terrified. And friends, it really, in so many moments, feels like pastoring these days where we're getting a chance to interact with the people who are sitting on the wall, listening to the Rabshakeh's threats, and pretending like they haven't heard him. Pretending like they didn't hear pretending like they didn't see, pretending like they didn't know. Which is kind of, again, part of the goal of this sermon is to kind of hopefully shake you just a little bit. To stop and to pause and to think like, where are my fears? What are the things I'm being afraid of? Now, interestingly here, it's just two ideas that are brought up, the fear of mankind and the fear of discomfort. And I'm sure nobody in this room struggles with those. But it's, it's like we're, we're, we're blinded to who we are and to how we're struggling. We're, we're blinded to the frailties of our own heart. We're blinded to that. And I think so much of it is because we're not thinking carefully about the step before it. Actively discerning the truth and the lies and the partial truths in our minds that's shaping our hearts. 
I mean, we're looking at kind of, as a nation, <clears throat> a crisis. And, and I would say, especially for young men, again, we're still trying to figure out exactly why this is and what's happening in our nation at the moment, but particularly for young men, the United States right now is a very, very difficult place for young men to be, and we don't know why yet. Right? Suicide rates for young men are like off the charts. I think part of this is this. That we have a nation that, that or at least personally, at least the Reformed Church, that is terrified but doesn't know it. And again, if you think you're not afraid, pay attention to where you're angry. It's the same thing. If you think you're not afraid, pay attention to where you're angry. It's almost certainly, it's the exact same thing. I love also, the passage doesn't stop with that, because I think the Rabshakeh offers the exact same remedy that our current cultural moment offers. And what he's done is, in verses really 5 through 4b through 10, he's presented a very distorted perception of the problem. A questionable relationship with the truth has created a problem that seems insurmountable and overwhelming and problematic in a way that just can't be resolved. That was then weaponized in verses 11 and 12 to to create this deep-seated, soul-altering kind of fear in the people of God, to to paralyze them, to, to remove their spine, to remove their ability to fight back, to remove their trust in God. But then he offers a solution. In verses 13 through 20, he offers a very clear solution. But it's not the solution that we would expect. Right? The, the solution that we might expect would be that it would be an obvious, we'll worship Satan, right? <laughs> I'm not interested in that, although people are these days, I guess. No, what, he, what he offers actually instead of, of just downright defiance What he offers instead of downright evil, weirdly, is pragmatism. What he offers is really a question of, well, what what works best? Like, let's be honest, what, what works best? That's the question that he offers as his solution. Look, verse 13, Rabshakeh stands, calls out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So now he's yelling to all of the people of Judah that are able to hear him. Uh, this is outside the gate, and a substantial portion of the city would have been able to listen. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Oh, you know, echoes through so everyone can hear. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you. Why? For he will not be able to deliver you. So don't listen to your king. Why? Because it doesn't work. Now, this is going to be a very important paragraph. Don't listen to the king because what he's going to do doesn't work. Verse 15. Don't let him make you trust the Lord by saying things. Implied answer, why? Because it doesn't work. Don't listen to Hezekiah, verse 16. Why? 
Because all he's going to lead you to is a siege where you will suffer and die. And instead, what does the king of Assyria offer? A better solution. Something that feels better. Something that looks better. Something that works better. Verse 16b, make your peace with me. and Come on out. Come on out, buddies. We'll be friends. And here's what's going to happen. If you leave the city, if you come on out and be on our team, switch teams, it'll be okay. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of you of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. So you won't be put in a siege. If you come out and be on our team, you can live in your own house and drink your own water and eat your own fruits and vegetables until... I come and take you to a land just like your own. A land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. (laughs) That sentence is so good. Look, if you come join our team, you can live in your own place and enjoy all of your benefits and all of the niceties of your house until I put you in slavery. Now, is that how he says it? No. No, right? We've already established he's a liar. He's not telling the truth. Well, I mean, this is a half-truth. That's in that category, isn't it? We know exactly, exactly how the uh, king of Assyria uh, managed to capture and subdue uh, the nations around him. This is exactly what it is. He'd come in and invade the land and then take all of the people and pick them up and move them to new places, splitting families, splitting children, splitting everyone. So that you're functionally, what you would have would be the army would come into a church like this, move me to Guatemala, move Nikki to Italy, move the kids to North Africa, and just trust that we're going to settle down. And so what would happen? Well, everybody ends up having to form new families, and who do you form new families with? Well, the new people that have been placed there from the other countries that he's invaded. So basically what he did is force the entire melting pot to melt faster. All the Jews were going to be transplanted and split up so that they would then have to remarry to people that weren't Jews and to raise children that weren't Jews and then to kind of force all of the cultures to merge into one so fast. But his offer is so sneaky, isn't it? Come on out. Enjoy the good things in the land until I show back up and then I'll take you to another good land. I mean, maybe not with your wife and kids, maybe not with your parents or your family, maybe not with any of your friends. In fact, maybe with no Jews at all. But that's all right. You're not going to be a Jew after this. You'll be a Syrian because this is how we assimilate Assyrians. But you know what? At least you'll have peace. In fact, actually, if you, on our team, you'll have peace and you'll have prosperity. You'll have a life that at least feels good at the beginning. And the consequences of sin don't really show up till later anyways. Instead, verse 18, beware of Hezekiah, your good king. Beware of Hezekiah, the one who's listening to the Lord, because he's going to say, the Lord will deliver us. But honestly, Has any of the gods of the nations been able to deliver their nation out of the hand of Assyria? Verse 19, where are the gods? Hamath and Arphad. Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they worked? Now, interestingly, is he telling the truth there? 
100%. Have any of the gods of the land been powerful enough to defeat the king of Assyria? No. Implication being yours won't be either. So if you want the easy way out, you want to have the good life, the simple thing and easy thing to do is compromise. The way of least resistance, the path of least resistance is compromise. Now, friends, I think many of us are probably aware of the frog and boiling water illustration. Weirdly enough, scientists are now beginning to question if that's even true or not anymore, but it's certainly true of people. That if the things are presented to us in ways that it's obvious and overt and clear for us to see, we'll reject it and we'll turn from it. But if it's hidden and covered over and clothed in other things with enough kind of perfume or cologne on it, anything can kind of pass through our defenses. And particularly when you watch kind of this progression take place, confusion coming from questionable presentation of the truth, producing fear in the hearts of the people of God that produces a commitment to just what works best. Not an issue of what God has said, not an issue of what's right and wrong, but simply an issue of what makes me feel good. What makes me feel best. I'd love to pretend like this isn't an issue in the church. If you're on social media and Christian circles, you probably noticed this week it went viral that one of the larger churches in America, one of the larger claiming to be evangelical churches in America today, uh, had a video go viral this week where two of their pastors, one of the, uh, I think their husband and wife is a man and a woman sitting there in the middle of a video and were unable to make a statement about the trans movement. As two of the pastors of one of the largest evangelical churches in America we're unable to make a statement, a conclu- like conclusive, definitive statement about the trans movement inside the church. And you just, your heart breaks. Because you're like, look, we're watching this in reverse in that church. Pragmatism, well, we don't know what the actual thing is because we don't know what's going to be best to them. Pragmatism has been the product of fear if we just don't know how man is going to handle this and what the, the culture around us is going to do because of distortion coming from misunderstanding the reality of the truth. In fact, actually, the passage here is going to give us really two solutions. And this is perhaps, I think, maybe where we need to spend a little bit of time individually, not here corporately, because I'm going to do this part very quickly. First, 21, they're obedient to the king. They don't answer back. They don't engage. I think this is probably the most shocking thing. Somewhere along the line, we got confused as Christians in thinking that when we engage the world, we engage them as peers, as if they deserve a say in our ethics, as if they deserve a say in our beliefs, as if they deserve a say in our churches. It's interesting when you get to see and actually pay attention to the New Testament and the relationship with the world and the relationship with the government. 
It's largely an emphasis on pray for your elected officials, your kings. Why? So that you may have a greater vote and elect the, the president that you want? Wrong. So that we may live quiet, peaceful lives. So that we may put our heads down and just be Christians together. It's not our job to run the nation as a church. It's not our job to be America as a church. Our job is to be the church, to love the Word of God, to be obedient in the sacraments, to live pious and holy lives, to evangelize our neighbor, to take care of one another. Our job is to be the church. Secondly, our job is to love the word of the Lord and to act accordingly. I love that you get to see this really with Eliakim and Shebna and Joah at the end. They show up to the king. They haven't said a word, right? They've kept their mouth shut, but how do they show up? Clothes torn. They show up in grief. They show up in repentance. They show up in sorrow and mourning. They show up grieving. The whole thing, though, there's a little bit of an inside joke happening. And honestly, because most of us are not very careful readers of the Old Testament, we've missed the entirety of the inside joke. The inside joke started in verse 2. In the 14th year, King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah, invaded this way, then he invaded this way. He took them all. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army, and he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. That bit that you didn't even hear me read the first time is actually the inside joke of all of it. Because if you were to turn back toward the beginning of the book, this is not the first conversation that's taken place here. In fact, actually, there was a very significant conversation that took place between Isaiah and the very king himself where Isaiah said, listen to God and he will care for you. That's actually been the entirety of the the kind of backdrop ringing through all of Isaiah 36 is the Lord in this exact location has already said, trust God and he will take care of you. It doesn't matter what the Rabshakeh says. It doesn't matter what the king of Israel says. You trust God and he will care for you. Friends, may it be that we ourselves would be those people that are, are not afraid to figure out where we're afraid. To find those holes in our soul, those empty spots, those fears that dominate our feelings, our opinions, our fear of man, our fear of discomfort, our fear of rejection, our fear of whatever. May we be those that find those things and bring them to the Word of God and trust that the mighty Savior, King Jesus, can forgive sin, can cleanse, and can protect through all of it. I suspect that one, if we are able to do this as a congregation, if we're able to find the path forward to do this, 
It will put us out of step with our culture and our community in a way that will be life-altering. But two, I suspect that it will provide a sense of freedom that will change everything about who we are and how we are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Particularly very fun and clever passages like this. Uh, Thank you for such a caricature of villainy as we see in the Rabshakeh. Lord, might we learn to trust you with a whole heart, not in our own ability, but in Christ, not in our own standing, but in Christ, not in our own power, but in Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.